Few recruiters have the same professional experience as Kim Godard. Sure, Kim started his experience in agency, much like the rest of us, but he then quickly moved to an internal recruitment role. And after a year in Facebook, he decided that contracting would be the ideal way of working for him. What is life like as a recruitment contractor? How does it compare to working in a permanent role? And what are the challenges of being a contractor? We'll answer this and much more with Kim on Coffee with a Recruiter. Okay, recording now. Hi, Kim. Hi, Jose. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you? Very good. Very good. Just wanted to thank you for taking the time for this podcast. And I mean, you have a very interesting profile. I mean, your career history, the fact that, you know, you're, you're somewhat unusual as a, as a contractor. So really wanted to get you on the podcast on this episode to unpack that experience a little bit. And uh, thank you for that. I suppose maybe before going into the specifics, can you give us maybe a quick overview of your experience, what you do and, and skills? Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, firstly, thanks for, for having me on. Um, but look, let me let me jump right in and, and give you a bit of a, a, an overview. So uh, as with many recruiters, I started in an agency. I spent about a year in a, a pretty small kind of tech recruitment agency, um, which was an interesting time. I, I learned a ton there. I got an opportunity to be pretty close to the founders who were, were somewhat kind of agency veterans. Um, not a ton, but realized that I absolutely sucked at new business. Um, <laughs> and during that time, I, I think one of the things that I found I actually loved about recruitment was more the kind of sourcing aspect of things. And in, and in fact, that's kind of what I used to kind of hobble by on the new business side from, from finding candidates and, and kind of selling them into to businesses that way. Um, so after about a year or so, I decided that, you know, that was the kind of avenue I wanted to pursue um, and got an opportunity to, to go to a company called Digitas LBI. So Digitas LBI, I think they're now Digitas, they, they were LBI at the time, they've gone through kind of various mergers, acquisitions and, and kind of rebrands, um, but ultimately are a global marketing agency. Um, I kind of went in there to, to focus around design hiring initially, specifically around research actually, rather than necessarily that kind of end-to-end -end recruitment piece. Um, but after about a, a month or so, I think someone in the team kind of left who was looking after more of that recruitment piece and I just kind of stepped into that. Um, having done that at agency, it just kind of felt natural. Um, so I spent about three years there, went from focusing purely around kind of UX design and then UI design to looking after creative. So that involved creative teams, art directors, so conceptual creatives, that side of things. I think I always kind of maintained a, a hand in tech as well. During that time, we used to hire kind of various, predominantly like front-end developer type type profiles or UI yeah. developers. Um, after about three years there, looking after kind of a variety of their brands, looking after kind of different locations, um, the head offices in Sweden, Paris, Dubai, um, which was super interesting. I learned a ton there. Um, I wanted to go somewhere that was kind of a little bit more product focused, a little bit more engineering orientated, right? So I had an opportunity to go and join Facebook and they were building out their, their London office there. Um, position came up, which was to, to work more kind of specifically again as a pure sourcer and focused on their, their kind of product teams, right? So the focus there was more around product design, a little bit around product management, um, UX research and then also data and analytics. Um, so they very much have a, a more mature kind of kind of sourcing recruiting partnership type model there. So it was quite interesting to dive more specifically into that kind of craft element of sourcing. Um, so I spent a, a while there building out um, their product team. So focused again largely on on design. I uh, can't remember the the number specifically, but I think we almost kind of doubled their design team in that in that first year, which was uh, an amazing time and uh, an amazing opportunity to to watch a business that works at huge scale grow at that kind of pace um, yeah. in a new office. And then after that period, I, I kind of decided that I wanted to go traveling. And um, it's it was something that was always kind of I guess front of mind and um, that I wanted to do. Didn't do it when I was younger. I um I kind of took a bit of a weird kind of educational route, I guess. Um, in that I 
studied music initially, then decided uh, kind of around about the time, I'm sort of showing my age here, but around about the time that I was studying for music, Napster came along and the kind of music industry was a little bit decimated, certainly in terms of being able to make a career in it. So <laughs> yeah. decided to go back to uni um, and, and study like a really generic English degree, uh, which was fun um, an interesting time. But as a result of that, I just kind of felt at that time I needed to get a career behind me. I couldn't really take the you know, gap year that people would sometimes take. Um, so kind of missed out, I missed out on that traveling. But after I've been to Facebook, I was like, right, feels like a solid brand on the CV. I've probably got a good <laughs> yeah. chance of being employed when I get back. Um, so I'm going to go and do that. So I spent about six months doing that. And then after that, decided to, to go consulting. And that's kind of when I started to work for a variety of different companies, as you mentioned earlier. So kind of since that period, I've worked at um, a place called Funding Circle. I've worked at Alassian, uh, Bain, company called OLX, and, and most recently and, and currently at Newbank. No, absolutely, and that's uh, that's such a um, that's such an interesting sort of transition. I guess before that, um, yeah, just going into sort of where you traveled. How was that period like? That traveling and everything. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. I think I think I learned a ton during that period. Right. Um, I think just in terms of like navigating like difficult environments. I know that sounds really odd, and sure, sometimes sure. people are like, "Oh, I really found myself when when traveling." I, I wouldn't say like I, I found myself as such. Um, but I certainly found new perspectives on, on, on kind of life um, and kind of how to deal with like curveballs that are thrown at you. So I traveled kind of India fairly extensively, um, Cambodia, Vietnam, the Philippines. Uh, I think that was about it. I'm sure I'm missing one. Um, but yeah, I spent kind of various amounts of time in, in those different countries. India was, was wild and, and kind of turned out to be probably my, my favorite country that I traveled. Um, so, you know, even kind of booking trains and things like that, like nothing is straightforward in India, but that's yeah, okay. kind of part of the beauty of it. Like it's, it's the beauties in the chaos. Right. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an amazing time. And, and they, uh, certainly in the Philippines was like that kind of idyllic beach period, right. The, the idea of paradise that, that people think of maybe when you go, go traveling. So yeah, it was, it was awesome. Yeah, that's one area of the world where I really need to go travel. I haven't traveled there yet. I mean, I've done some traveling in the past, but that's that's definitely on the bucket list and definitely something that I need to 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 take care of. So, no, that's an amazing amazing experience. And I suppose throughout your your experience coming back to sort of what you specialize in, would, what would you say are the areas of recruitment that you're quite skilled at maybe in terms of roles or is it more stakeholder management or is it more the sourcing overall the sourcing process what are your sort of key areas yeah interesting question um so i would kind of consider myself what i call like prod tech right so we're prod tech sourcer recruiter i've done a range of either like dedicated sourcer positions but then also some that are end-to-end and i also think that the lines between where a kind of sourcer stops and a recruiter starts you know in bigger kind of more tech-focused companies is, is a little bit blurred anyway and kind of changes company from company. Um, but if I was going to give myself an area, like I said, I'd say prod tech. So if I was to break down what I mean by that, um, it would, I guess be that I'm comfortable across all areas of a cross-functional team, right? So whether that's product design, product management, software engineering, and then some of the areas that maybe plug into that. So if you're looking at like data analytics, so like data engineering, data science, for example, um, and various kind of like product analytics types positions. Um, and then in terms of the levels, I've hired from kind of grad and IC levels right up to kind of senior leadership. Um, but I would say definitely the, the focus more recently has been around that kind of senior IC and then also kind of leadership hiring most recently. And when it comes to ProTech, so what would be sort of your key guidelines? Let's say if a recruiter was unpacking a new role and they're like, oh, I've never done ProTech before. What are some, some of the key elements that you would advise, right? What, are, what would be sort of the key guidelines there? Like, okay, keep in mind that product managers or ProTech people, they're more X, Y, and Z, or it's all about, let's say, knowing your market really well, knowing the role really well. What would be sort of the areas to keep an eye on? I'd say, and, and this is probably fairly commonplace advice, but mm -hmm. when you work internal, one of the advantages that you have is that you work with the people that you're going to hire for, right? Yeah. So people love to talk about what they do. That's just a natural thing. Like if you, if you do what you love, you love to talk about it, right? So 
spend time with those people, like find out what makes a good product manager. Like I, I've come to these positions. I, I didn't just kind of always recruit these positions, right? I've come to them and I didn't have a clue about what a product manager looks like in terms of what makes a good product manager or what makes a good software engineer or how do you even assess that kind of stuff, right? So I, I think that is honestly like the, the easiest and best piece of advice that I've ever been given and that certainly I could give to someone else when they're coming to a, to a role fresh. Um, in terms of you know other things that you can do from kind of sourcing perspectives you know there are they're kind of the obvious things like look at companies that are for example held up um as you know the, the ideal of having great product managers right or great software engineers and try and unpack it a little bit around you know where do these companies hire from are there trends there is there stuff that you can pick apart to to kind of learn a little bit more around you know where you should be going and looking um, and then start to if you speak to those people start to understand why that is perhaps there's trends between those types of people and the attributes that make a great product manager, for example, if I'm talking about that, uh, like one of the big kind of fan companies. And that's not to say that all great product managers exist at fan companies. Uh, that's just to say you can use that as a guideline to kind of help guide you outside of what your hiring managers are telling you. Yeah, I think one of the key things about product managers, it's such a nebulous, I mean, it's it's a good role, but it's also very nebulous or very sort of, tricky when it comes to exactly what it is they need to do in their role, at least from the product managers I've engaged with a lot of job descriptions out there throw project management type responsibilities in the role or at the same time, from what I've seen, at least I've done only a handful of just a few product manager roles, but you have things like commercial product manager, a technical product manager. So there's a lot of sort of I suppose, different types of product product managers out there. Whereas, a uh, let's say if you're doing a back-end Python developer role, it's it's pretty black and white, right? It's Once you see a profile out there on LinkedIn or a CV, it's like, mm-hmm. yep, that's a Python developer. Whereas a product manager, ooh, it gets a bit tricky. Like, what do they exactly do? And then you have to give them a call and then really qualify them. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, and I think, you know, something that I didn't really touch on, I've hired like limitedly, but I've hired some business roles. And I, I think, you know, as an industry, maybe this is just kind of a side thought perhaps, but as an industry, we talk a lot about tech recruiting and tech sourcing. And, and we hold this up as like this, uh, it's kind of like the golden part, right, of recruiting, I think it's talked about all the time. But I think there's a lot to be said for the complexities around business recruiting, for example, yeah. right? It's, it's tough. Like when I've switched across those roles, I think we always, as, as kind of tech-orientated people, will be like, tech recruiting is really tough, it's really hard to attract people. But, you know, when you go into a business role, you're like, how do I assess this person? I know how yeah. to assess a software engineer. I know how to assess a, a kind of product designer or whatever that may be, right? But I think that those kind of nuances, like you said, with product management, it is tough. And I think that that does come from, like I said, speaking and understanding to the people within the business that you're hiring for. Like, what does that look like within that business as well? So I think that's like a really valid point. Yeah, the the tough, the mainly the tough part about things like software developers is they're very unresponsive. You know, the response rate is very <laughs> low on LinkedIn or wherever. Whereas, okay, maybe the commercial roles are, or business roles, they're a bit more responsive. But then you got to do a lot of calls. You really got to go in depth. So that makes it a bit more labor intensive in that side. Exactly, exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. Now, I, when it comes to the, I mean, I'm very curious to know about what was the transition like, let's say, so Facebook happened, then some, some time traveling, and then you went into contracting. So sort of what was the motivation behind that? How did it happen? Was it your decision or was it more you got the role sort of opportunity and you, you thought, oh, this seems interesting? Sort of what was the switch like, really? Yeah, it's, it, I was a bit unsure. I think a lot of people who, you know, I was in a slightly different situation, right? Because I'd just come back from traveling. Um, but I think a lot of people who may be in that that permanent position, contracting feels like a risk, right? You, you feel like you have less job security, maybe. Um, and I can understand the, the kind of aversion to maybe going down that route. And I think for me, there are a couple of factors there. I think that I kind of got to a point where I felt like, right, I've done the agency thing. I've done like a, a big marketing agency, like having, you know, real kind of ownership over a ton of different areas. And then I've worked in like an ultra kind of refined and data-driven kind of tech and product organization. And I just kind of felt that it was a really good opportunity for me to to kind of, 
it sounds a bit weird, but just shop around almost, right? Get a feel for different organizations in terms of like, what's their culture like? What's it like to hire and what can I bring to the table? I've always kind of liked the the deliverables aspect of, of hiring. So I like building things, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of inherent in my nature. And that's not to say that I don't like getting involved in, in projects. Um, I do, but I think projects are kind of, they're less tangible, right? When you're, when you're doing your job, whereas when you maybe start, I don't know, hiring for a particular team or when you start, there's 10 people and by the end of the year, I don't know, maybe there's 23 people and you're sat around in one of those kind of stand-ups or those meetings and you're seeing all of these people that you've been a part of building. Like that to me is where I get my kicks, right? And I think contracting lends itself really well to that because you're usually going in there to, to do a specific thing right? There's usually a particular reason um, that a company needs to bring a a kind of contractor or a consultant in. So it's just a real opportunity to do that. And I guess I started off thinking I'm going to shop around and if I find a a permanent, you know, gig that that seems like the place I'm going to stay, then I'll stay. And then I ended up just kind of getting a bit of a buzz for doing the kind of deliverables aspect and have just kind of stayed doing it, to be honest with you, and uh, kind of trying different places. I've also had the opportunity going through various organizations to work in quite a few teams and I feel like I've learned a ton from different people just different perspectives and doing things and and hopefully you know taught a few people a few things as well along the way and I think one of the advantages obviously I've never really contracted um, I've done something kind of similar but but not really but I think probably one thing that differentiates you is you've encountered all types of different problems and you've found all types of different solutions to those problems from being in different companies. So you can just bring back experience from, from previous Mm -hmm. roles and then think, okay, this is how you solve this problem. And, oh, I've seen this before at another company. So I know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. So I think definitely that should be an experience that, that would really help someone as a, as a recruiter. Now, I suppose what was, what's sort of the, the, the difference between, permanent and contract let's say i suppose what i'm trying to get at is were there any eye-opening moments like whoa this is kind of different when it comes to contracting than than permanent definitely definitely there are some differences right I, and i think i don't know how many of these are actual differences or how many of these are things that you kind of internally internalize right sure so i think when you're you're permanent or you just start somewhere permanent there's this feeling of you have almost this this bit of grace period, right? Like you're getting to learn the business and yes, you want to, to kind of make your first hire. Everyone does. Cause I think when you're a recruiter, you relax a bit after that first hire, right? If you're in the swing, mm-hmm. like I can do this. Um, I think as a, a contractor, there's almost this, this feeling of expectation, right? That you're going to come in and solve this problem instantly. And sometimes that's not the way. Like sometimes there are much bigger problems that you need to unpack and you need to, to kind of fix various other things before you can start doing that. Um, but I think, yeah, that internal pressure is definitely something. Um, I think in terms of some businesses have a, a better perception towards contractors than others. Um, and that's not to say that it's necessarily negative, but I think maybe as a permanent member going into some teams, um, you're kind of seen as like, welcome to the team, right? Whereas yeah. I think as a contractor, sometimes you're hired quite quickly and not necessarily the team have met you in like they would in a kind of typical permanent interview process, right? So I think one of the, the things that you may kind of come up against going into contracting is people looking at you a bit like, is this person coming in to take my job or are they coming in because I'm not doing my job well enough? And right. an ele- yeah, it's, it's a weird feeling, right? And there's an element sometimes of just kind of, as bizarre as it sounds, almost like putting your arm around someone saying, like, I'm here because you don't have the capacity, like you're being <laughs> overworked, right? I'm here yeah. to help. Like, I'm not here to replace you or to create any kind of like issues with your work. Like, I'm literally here to help you. So it's, it's not the case. Like some people are more clued in and, and it kind of varies from, from company to company. But I think that's maybe kind of some of the differences there. Um, and then I think you learn also certain things, contracting that maybe you don't necessarily from a from a kind of permanent perspective or you learn them in a slightly different way right and because i was talking about that that pressure earlier almost it maybe again that's just me internalizing but that kind of feeling right you you learn to do things a little bit faster i think um in terms of contract because also you might have a set period of time and you know, you, you kind of live on your, your reputation ultimately. Um, so I think you want to do a good job and you need to get up to speed as quickly as possible. 
Um, so you tend to be like a, a little bit more laser focused with certain things. And that's not to discredit permanent people. I mean, sometimes it could be if you're not careful to a detriment, I think. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you might be more direct, for example. So we're like, whereas when you join a, from a, a permanent perspective, maybe you're just kind of gently navigating the organization and understanding who the influences are, who you need to go and speak to about something. I think as a contractor, like you're, you're very quick to just say, right, I need to find this person as soon as possible and I need to speak to them for whatever the reason might be right and um, you might be thinking rather than kind of slowly as I was talking about earlier speaking to people maybe you do some kind of faster calibration exercises right so as an example some stuff that, that I've done in the past will be looking through kind of all of the the, the feedback on uh, an ATS right uh, the near oh, yeah. misses on the kind of the people who have been hired and maybe you will kind of as kind of crass as it sounds copy and dump that into a word cloud look for themes right so that's a way to like really quickly calibrate against the hiring bar because you'll find like repetitive patterns and themes and things that you start to understand how to build your sourcing strategy around so i, I think you you do the same things the differences are, are you just learn how to be a little bit more brutal and, and kind of laser focused because your time is is a, a little bit more limited it's so interesting you mentioned that about looking at the ATS because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but probably when people think, oh, maybe a recruitment contractor, they think, okay, this, this person, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but they might think, oh, they're only here to bring the CVs and book in the interviews and it's all about delivery, which is the key element there. But there's a lot of non-sourcing, but very strategic project heavy stuff behind the scenes going on that helps hiring managers and companies not just recruit faster, better, but also the best people out there like that piece of looking at the ATS, looking at the feedback or maybe other other things that also helps you in order to find the best people. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I've, I've done kind of a real array of uh, things. Like Predominantly, like I said, you're there for a reason. More often than not, what I find is it, it can be a little bit delivery focused. Um, but sometimes you need to, like you said, do the work before you get to the delivery focused work, yeah. right? So I've done pieces where, you know, to give you an example, I was working for a company um, and we were we were struggling to hire a, a particular kind of engineering profile, right? It was um, a niche language and they were looking to hire. It was around the time I think Brexit was was being talked about. So that that kind of typical you know approach of going around Europe and, and kind of looking from those top kind of tech company scale ups, people who have the same tech stack, um, was being a little bit more even more so difficult than than kind of typically in terms of response rates, right? And people just wanted to kind of stay put and see what would happen. Yeah. Um, so it was a, it was a real challenge, and and there was like a, a real aggressive growth target on the company. And I started to kind of look at that and I was just like, there's no way that we're going to hit these targets, right? It's just not plausible. There are a few of us working on this particular pipeline. Um, so I wanted to kind of analyze what was going on in the market, you know, what the viability was actually before going to a hiring manager and saying, we're not going to hit this target. I wanted to understand the viability. And the reason that I wanted to do that is because I was thinking, right, if we need to grow by X amount and we're not going to be able to do that because the talent in the kind of talent landscape, if you like, is not there then we need to have a kind of a plan B, right? Mm, and the yeah. plan B, which I think a, a lot of companies will or are starting to certainly kind of go down the route of, um, is hiring that kind of tech agnostic way, right? So language, not language kind of specific. So just looking for really good software engineers yeah. who are able to kind of pick up languages pretty quickly, right? Because they've got the fundamentals. And that to me was the, the kind of natural step to go to because it would enable us to, to hire at volume and then siphon off some, some kind of specialist people, right? Who would help and, and kind of help grow the team help mentor the team and that kind of stuff so as a team we did some some kind of huge data scrapes um largely i think it was on github that we were using and um, we also plugged in um kind of a crm tool uh, it's called mix match i'm trying to remember now um, but that was also automating follow-ups and things like that so we scraped the data around everyone who you know worked in that particular language we kind of populated that in sheets we then plugged that into kind of automation um, messaging CRM tools and um, sent out the, the the kind of first batches it was all personalized because you could tokenize your messages so you know they weren't just kind of straight up mail shots they were actually specific um, and started to, to track the response rates and what we were able to do with that is then go to the hiring manager and say, 
hey, this is the entirety pretty much of that market within these like three or four you know countries within let's say like an 80% kind of accuracy, right? Um, and so these are, these are the specific people that work in that language in these countries. This is our response rate at the moment. And this is what we need to hire. And in terms of our like interview put through rate, this is where we're at at the moment, right? So mm. you could just start to see, like I think especially with software engineering hiring managers, right? They, they kind of can work with figures quite well and data quite well. So you could see they were just not plausible. That enabled us to, to kind of get the jump rather than just ambling around trying to hire these people to switch the process, put a new process in and start to hire kind of language agnostic and kind of really push that element and move towards hitting those hiring goals. So like I said, it's a, it's a long example, but you get the point. Like sometimes oh, no, no, there's no, a ton cool. of work you have to do before you even get to those deliverables. It's so interesting. I mean, and that's such a challenge when you're, I suppose you're engaging with hiring managers and there's slightly unrealistic expectations of, okay, in the next three months, we need to hire whatever it is, 15 people, something, mm-hmm. you know, just for argument's sake. And, uh, and one, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of recruiters, they get locked down into, okay, they're two months in and then they realize, oh my God, okay, there's, it's, and then by then it's too late, right? Uh, I suppose how, how fast did you have to pivot? How fast did you have to reassess the situation in order to avoid, you know, digging yourself too far into the hole and then thinking after two, three months and after the deadline, like, okay, this was unrealistic from the beginning. How did you, I suppose, drive that urgency to the hiring managers also? I, it was it was actually surprisingly early. So we'd worked out some capacity planning around kind of typical hiring rates for software engineers anyway. Added a bit of leeway so that if we moved language agnostic, it would enable us to, to hire slightly more than we were currently hiring at. Yeah. Then looking at the target, just kind of working back from that, right? So I think by the end of the year, we'd needed to get, this was quite early on in the year, I think by the end of the year, year, there were sort of three of us working it. We needed to, I can't remember, it was hit around something like 30 or so hires. I can't remember how, how many months specifically there were. Um, but when we were looking at those, those kind of capacity models and, and saying, look, if we are, we were working other roles as well, but if we're averaging kind of two software engineers at a kind of senior mid-level per person per month, right, um, there's no way that we are going to hit these targets, right? So it was kind of, that's what started to drive it. And I was thinking, this is a problem. And then also, like I said, in conjunction with that, we'd all started to see a kind of a trend in terms of people slowing down and coming back to us, especially from kind of European orientated companies and yeah. looking to do that relocation piece, right? So that was when I was kind of looking at things thinking, right, we, we need to do something like now, because if we don't do something now, we're going to be in big trouble in like kind of two, three months time because we're not going to have the time to put in the process. Because I, I think I just had the experience of knowing that these things take time to implement as well. You don't just kind of pivot and go, right, new process. Let's <laughs> yeah. start like there's a, there's a whole like process that goes with that process, right? So you need to design the process in terms of like what those stages look like. You need to calibrate your interviews. You need to make sure everyone knows what they're looking for. How do you assess that? What, what's the kind of ideal profile? So all of that stuff kind of takes, you know, like time itself. You, I mean, it's difficult to put specific, depends on the engagement, right? But it can take like a month, month and a half to, to get that stuff going, depending on the engagement from your hiring managers. So yeah, I think it was it was almost like 10 months out that we started the process of scraping the data and collecting that data before we kind of took it to hiring managers. So it was it was very early on. And were there any also anything along the lines of salary, sort of, let's say, misconceptions where maybe the hiring manager was also offering slightly below market rate, anything along those lines, or were they competitive salaries? Because obviously that makes also a, a bit of a difference, right? Mm-hmm. I think we were, in terms of that side of things, I mean, I have had those issues before. Um, I think it's something that we all come up against, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think in that particular like type of environment, because the, the tech was quite niche in itself that we were hiring for, um, the salaries were generally kind of above market rate anyway, right? To kind of attract these yeah. people. Because you've got to base it on what the market's doing. So actually, if anything it kind of worked almost the opposite way around to how it usually does, I think, in most people's experience, right? So you, you had the chance to say, hey, actually, rather than, I don't know, it being 70K for argument's sake, right, for, for a 
kind of senior mid software engineer, you could be a case where you're going, well, we might be able to get someone who's kind of 5K cheaper than that because we're open to a kind of more commonplace programming language, right? And then if you multiply, multiply that across kind of five roles, you actually make a massive cost save. And maybe you can hire an extra kind of tech lead or start to look at like the headcount and play around with that thing, that kind of thing. That yeah. stuff happens kind of towards the end of the year it just enables a bit more budget in that that particular engineering managers kind of hiring plans if that makes sense but um it worked in the other way around we were quite lucky in in that instance but yeah i have i have been in that situation before and if i understood correctly was it to hire in a london office and you were looking at continental europe to get people or what sort of where which locations were those yeah, it was it was London. Um, it was London office, and we were we were looking at the kind of usual suspects, right? So, uh, I think most people would go to kind of Eastern Europe is a natural place um, for people going and, and hunting software engineers, especially if you you know you have a tendency to to kind of look via education scaling companies where the people mm-hmm. kind of tend to be a little bit more transient. From, for example, um, you know you're you're far more likely to, in, in my opinion, get someone to move from. Poland or Ukraine than you would be, for example, from an Amsterdam, maybe even a Berlin, right? Yeah, it's it's so tricky. I mean, especially with, I suppose, especially the time of Brexit has really changed candidates' perspectives and sort of preferences of where to relocate. I remember trying to source last year uh, in, in, in these countries, actually, but also just generally continental Europe. I mean, the response, rate were, the response rates were good, but then you get people asking, but can I work remotely? you know in my in my own country and then you're like well you know you would have to relocate and then they tell you well i mean i'd I'd rather maybe wait out to see what happens with brexit because obviously that would make a move a bit tricky exactly exactly i think the other thing that we were seeing at that time as well which was like quite new to me and i i don't know if it was a particular company or a group of companies for example but there were a lot of kind of bay area companies it seemed that we're targeting, for example, Eastern European engineers, oh, wow, okay. offering them, yeah, offering them remote roles and not far off Bay Area salaries. Wow! Like, so <laughs> oh, my it's God. kind of like you, you have no chance of competing against that whatsoever. And you know that was all part of the data set that we were looking to take to engineering managers as well to, to kind of inform them, which they were kind of stunned and, and then considering I think a move to Eastern Europe after I was telling them that stuff. Um, so I ended up begging them not to go to Eastern Europe. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was it was an interesting interesting factor that started to play in, and I, I think maybe something that we will perhaps see more of given the current situation as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's so odd. I mean, then you see these Bay Area companies coming in and and just taking all the talent, and that definitely mm-hmm. makes a difference. I mean, obviously, if you offer such a such a salary to someone uh, over there, then it's like the best of both worlds, and then obviously that that makes all of the difference. So definitely tough competition to to come up with. And I suppose was it through asking the candidates, so who else are you interviewing with, and then they tell you some names, and then you're like, whoa, oh my god, okay, we got to reassess the situation. I think they seem to sort of keep it quite a lockdown in terms of telling yeah. me which companies it was. So like, like I said, I'm not <laughs> sure if it was a group of companies, whether it was a specific company. Um, I don't know why that was. Um, maybe paranoia because it was like a pretty sweet gig that was coming their way. Yeah, um, I don't sure want to mess it up, yeah. No, exactly. Like, I don't know if they just wanted to get that information out. It was a bit of a strange, strange thing, right? Because it's like, well, I'm not going to go for the job. Um, but, yeah. But yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely interesting. Um, and then you've also got the consultancies, right, as well. Um, maybe not paying the kind of Bay Area rates, but you've got your kind of top towels, for example, um, who hire remote. And, and that equally is a challenge. So I think they tend to go after that type of talent as well. Um, and remote is just such a factor, right? And uh, most yeah. of us have got some experience of that right now. Um, obviously, something that I've done a, a little longer term, but it's, it's quite difficult to tempt someone into a relocation when they're working remote. And uh, maybe that also answers the following question, but, but was there a particular project that, that's your favorite where you thought, wow, this, is, this was amazing, we totally saved this project and achieved a lot? Was it this one or was, it, was there a highlight? Is there another highlight that you would say, oh, this is my sort of, sort of prized experience almost? Look, I think that's that's definitely it was like a, a huge project that was like really successful. Um, so definitely be one of them. I think I did a, another project which is difficult to to kind of quantify 
success other than the kind yeah. of appreciation of the people that I was doing it for. Um, but there was kind of a, a mapping piece, um, again, kind of trying to understand where we could go and get talent for it was in a different different organization. Um, and it was looking at kind of senior and, uh, and leadership type hiring. And it was a really interesting um, project and, and one that I really enjoyed for completely different reasons. Um, and that was just because it was very different to, I think, a way that a lot of companies approach searching for talent. Um, so rather than necessarily, you know, but I think we all tend to do maybe being a bit lazy, which is kind of just, you know, where does everyone hire from? Where it has a high bar? Let's go and try and pitch for those people or let's go and try and take talent out of, you know, the fang companies, for example. Yeah. It was a little bit more focused around like, where is nobody else looking? Um, and yeah, it was, it was fascinating. So the process for that was more around using things like Crunchbase um, and similar web uh, and then also a tool called Aula. And so what that was was looking at was what companies are we not aware of that work at colossal scale or have a colossal, a colossal amount of users, for example, um, because the scale was a very important factor, right, in hiring in this particular company. Um, so it was kind of like, where is it that, you know, your Facebooks, Amazons, Netflix, Apples, Googles are not hiring from, but they probably could be hiring from, right? Okay. Um, so it was exploring, I don't know, like regions like Turkey, for example, like are there particular companies there or are there companies in Ukraine that we've never looked at or, you know, wherever it may be across Europe um, to understand and connect those dots, right? So not only kind of what are their kind of monthly or daily active users, so to give you an inkling of scalability, like what funding stage are they at? Have they IPO'd yet? Kind of where are they in their kind of company maturity? Um, so I think what you often find as well, certainly in my experience, is that companies go through a phase of maturing, right? So they, they kind of scale, they go through hyper growth, grow really quickly, um, and they get to a point where they're maybe starting to shift towards, let's say, an IPO scenario, certainly if they're pre-IPO, um, and then they start to mature and put kind of a lot of senior leadership in um, that can kind of help steer the much bigger ship that wasn't a thing when the company started, right? Um, so looking for those types of companies and then connecting all of those dots to try and isolate which should be the targets in each kind of specific country and then what the kind of leadership and the senior IC level um, tech and product organization looks like there. So that was really fascinating, but not necessarily something that a hiring manager would turn around and say, oh, I absolutely love that piece. More kind of geeky recruitment stuff, I guess. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting you mentioned that because I wanted to discuss a little bit alternative sourcing methods and uh, I suppose tools outside of LinkedIn, right? I think recruiters, mm -hmm. a lot of times we get stuck in LinkedIn day in, day out. But uh, I know you mentioned, you know, GitHub and so forth, but mm -hmm. what would be sort of your go-to tools that you would say, oh, if I'm not on LinkedIn, these are my, my core tools? It really, it really varies, right? So... I, I always have a tendency, I'll speak to various sources recruiters about this, and I, I go off on a rant, so I'm going to try not to do that. Jose. I try not to go <laughs> sure, on a rant sure, sure. right now, right? So uh, I think people are always interested like in alternative sourcing because they want another tool. And I think the one thing I would always say to people is like, what's going to give you the best kind of ROI, right? So sourcing a profile on Twitter is cool. You feel great doing it, right? Or GitHub for that matter, right? Whatever it may be, Stack Overflow, yeah. any of those. It feels great, but if it's taking you, you know, three months to make that hire, like you're looking in the wrong place, right? Sim simple facts, right? Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it can vary, obviously, and that's a, a bit of a generalization, right? So I should probably backtrack on that. Like if the person is standout, unique, like you've been trying to engage them on other platforms and you haven't managed to do it and you've gone and made that hire, like, of course, like it, it's worth the investment, right? Um, but I think it's about looking at where you're going to get the best return. Now, the way that I kind of process things is that I find that doing my sourcing on LinkedIn, for example, buys me the exotic sourcing time. There's a, actually on a side note, there's a, a great article um, on a website called Source, SourceCon. I think it's still there. Or it's immediate now, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I think it's called, Do You Suffer From Exotic Sourcing Syndrome? <laughs> uh, and, it, and it's really worth, a, really worth a read. It's a really great article by probably, I think it's written by Glenn Cathay, who is 
probably one of like the, the godfathers of alternative sourcing. Um, but well worth a read if you're into that stuff. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm digressed. Um, sure. In terms of in terms of like what I was talking about there, like LinkedIn buys you the right to do that exotic exotic sourcing. Um, so get your get your kind of pipeline going using that because it's the nearest way to kind of index profiles. After that, I might start looking. Obviously, on kind of GitHub, if I'm looking for something more specifically, I might look at kind of Stack Overflow. If there's a particular problem, if it's engineering, for example, right, and there's a particular problem or a particular skill set that we're looking for, like who are the people that are really rated for for answering that? Um, I kind of, again, I kind of gauge on like what are the returns I'm getting. I think that's a question you need to consistently ask yourself when you're sourcing. Like, am I getting any concerns? Like, there's no point sitting there for four hours if you're not finding anyone. Like, yeah. you need to be finding people or finding leads or be looking for things. And then outside of that, um, the amount of CVs that are just hosted on people's personal blogs on Google, um, I think it's it still kind of blows my mind that people don't literally type in CV senior software engineer for example and then the text that they're looking for maybe put in you know file type pdf or dot doc <laughs> or whatever it is and it will literally index you like at least 50 cvs more than likely especially if you're looking for a pretty commonplace technology right and they're just there with numbers with emails with like all of the information that you want um a way to get outside of linkedin and message these people so there's a there's a ton of ways um in short that you can kind of go and do these things but i guess the thing that I would say is the most important thing to do is to understand like if you are getting that return on investment and if you're not switch back to LinkedIn, change it up. I just think one buys you the opportunity to do the other thing that's more interesting, right? Yeah. I always thought um, because I've flirted in the past with GitHub and, and other tools and I've always felt, okay, I mean, this seems nice and everything at the end of the day, it's more sort of if you've exhausted LinkedIn, then start trying out these these tools and to be fair you can exhaust linkedin pretty quickly also i mean if you do a let's say a tech a tech search in london it gets you maybe a good sort of obviously if how depending on how specific you are it gets you a good maybe 300 profiles you save those you start messaging them but then you need sort of new life new people in the pipeline then you start looking at these more sort of niche sort of very specific tools i mean would you say that's that's a good approach or how would you I suppose it comes back to what gives you the best return, right? But would would you say that's a decent approach? What are your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. definitely. I think, look, one of the other things that I would say is that there's, there's a couple of things here, right? So I'll, I'll try and unpack it, right? So people will exhaust a search on LinkedIn and they may not mess around with their search too much. That's the first thing I would say. Iterate on it, mess around with the search, yeah. use different ways of, of kind of writing things. People misspell stuff on their profiles all the time. That's not indicative of that person not being very good. For example, you know, I keep using a software engineering example. It's just easier, especially when we're talking about tools and other avenues, right? But sure. people mis- misspell stuff all, all the time, right? So they may call it Java rather than Java. Like <laughs> the amount of people who would never search for that. Like how many people do you think are messaging that candidate? They don't because they're typing Java and you might occasionally come across, you know, by mistake, you put a typo in and you come across that, that profile. Um, or there's ways, for example, that you can, can, I think it's called black hole sourcing, for example, on LinkedIn, right? Which is a, another approach that you can take where maybe you'll put the, I don't know, the, the title, so senior software engineer to use that title again, and then remove all of the technologies that you would typically search for because people who just have blank profiles. Yeah, that's people, so true. Yeah. Yeah, people get indexed right at the back of the search, and maybe you never get to page 10 or whatever it is, right? Um, but it's another way of bringing those people to the front of your search and maybe exploring those and doing it a little bit back to front. And then the other thing that I would say is that in terms of, you know, you feel like you've exhausted that search on LinkedIn, right? Maybe your mm-hmm. response rate isn't isn't great. Now, we can, you know, we'll talk about how you can write the perfect message. And there's a, there's a ton of articles and people talking about that kind of stuff. So probably not best for me to go into that. I'm sure there's people better at it than I am. Um, but maybe there's a, a kind of different way to contact those people. And, and you'd be amazed at how easy it is to search. I don't know. I don't think this would come up to my knowledge, but maybe you would look to get hold of me, right? And you couldn't find my email address. I could be sat there with my email address on GitHub, right? So maybe you just type in GitHub, GitHub and Kim Goddard, and it will probably pull up a profile with me, which has my email address on it, right? And the amount of people who don't do that, and it's just another avenue. And if you're yeah. sending people this, the kind of same-ish message in the same place, 
and expecting to get a different response, then you might do, but it could well be luck. Whereas if you're going outside of that platform and you're finding a way to get directly into that person's inbox, you're kind of increasing your chances in my mind. So I guess that's something else that I would say. You can still get a return on investment, even using your LinkedIn sourcing, just using a few other alternative things. Yeah, I think it's funny you mentioned the sort of how to write a perfect message type um type type question because i think it's 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 i mean it you sort of need to it's not about you know some writing a a award-winning few lines of poetry that's going to captivate i think it it's actually a bit more on the basic side like you know it's it's not so much about the message it's more about okay you send them an email two days later you try again if that doesn't work send them an email um, and then sort of try all angles. And sometimes I think that's sort of the the game changer is not just tr- sending one message and then giving up, but actually trying a few times, changing yeah. it up every time you try, like, hey, I send you another message. And then you um, maybe tell them a new f- bit of information of the company you're mm-hmm. presenting and then an email. And then that gets people responding because a lot of times they'll just tell you, oh, hey, yeah, I just I was meaning to to respond to you but yep. but i forgot or i was just caught up with work so thank you for reaching out again so i think that's definitely yep. something to consider and um and yeah alternative sourcing it's just such a such a tricky because there's so many tools out there that you can sort of uh get more busy trying out different things in different areas mm-hmm. as opposed to uh and trying to be different i think it's a, a problem of trying to be different and trying to be cool right and then showing off like oh yeah i did this github search and this and that whereas okay but seriously though i mean you can invest two hours on github and maybe find a profile or two which is cool i mean if you do that then then awesome or you can invest in this other tool that's actually going to get you a few more responses right yeah a hundred percent i I don't think it's a a one-size fits all and I, i've sourced on a ton of, uh, of different kind of platforms and sites looking for a variety of different people but like i said the, my approach to that is that you know linkedin by and large we can say what we will about alternative sourcing right and it's great i love that aspect of the job right yeah but ultimately speaking we are kind of brought into companies to build teams and to hire right so like i said linkedin is that where you're getting your best roi sometimes it might not be right but by and large in my experience it is where you're going to get your best roi so go there and then buy yourself the time to play around and try and find that kind of worldy candidate that you know they might not even be on linkedin they might not be there right they might be one of the best kind of engineers in a particular language in, in the world or kind of rated so so in such a way if that makes sense um, or it could be a, a designer that you won't find on LinkedIn because they hang out on Dribble or whatever it may be. But I think, you know, as long as you keep your pipeline going, and, and this is probably very much like a sourcing mentality that I have with that, um, then you're kind of in a good place to, to play around with that stuff. And I think the other thing, and you, you touched on this a little bit, is kind of tools, right? And, uh, and tools for me, especially on the sourcing side of the thing, is such a, a crucial part. Um, anything that can kind of help speed things up or automate things um, is just super useful. There's on that topic, actually, there's um, and on the topic of GitHub, there's a, a really great kind of GitHub um, account. I can never pronounce the name, but I think it's Shamelia. Um, it's called Awesome Recruitment. And if you type in Awesome Recruitment in GitHub, you'll get her list of, of kind of top tools, whether they're paid, free, things like that, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. an amazing um, resource. And what she's done there in terms of collating that is like genuinely awesome. Um, so if people are looking for that kind of stuff, I'd, I'd definitely say to go and look there. And it will give you new and interesting things to, to play around with as well. Now, just to just to wrap up, so and this is a bit of a fun question, but so you you know you're a contractor, and I understand sort of what got you into contracting. I guess just two questions to wrap up, but what sort of kept you in contracting, and what would compel you to go into a permanent role again? Is there anything at all, or would you say, nah, I'm good here? Ooh, that's a, uh, <laughs> it's a tough question. It's, do you know what? It's something I'm kind of moving towards on that latter question. I'm moving towards that life phase where, you know, permanent life and, and kind of having holiday again, because that's one of the things I think maybe people yeah. don't think about, um, would be quite nice to have. I do like traveling as, as I kind of mentioned earlier. So, uh, maybe that would be quite nice. That's something that I'm, I'm maybe starting to think about, but not quite there yet. 
in terms of what's kept me contracting, um, look, I, I think I've been really lucky. Uh, I've worked for some some really great and interesting um, brands and and kind of projects that I've worked on. Um, I don't know if everyone necessarily gets that kind of luck, and I think a lot of it is luck. Um, I've been lucky to to been referred to places, and and that tends to be kind of how I got my contracts mainly, like from working with people, and they'll kind of refer me in. So um, I think that that's what's kind of kept me. If I started, you know, being in a situation where you know, I'm working for, for organizations that I don't like, or I thought I'm kind of having to sell my soul a little bit. I, th- I think maybe that would be the, the jump off point to say, right, it's, it's time to call it, call it a day. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and there's always that thing where, oh, you, maybe you do a role and maybe it's not what you thought it was. And then, well, you know, I guess it's, it's, a, it's another thing of contracting that even if the role might not be incredibly awesome you know okay just six months of this you know we can get through it and then you know we'll we'll take the next step i think that's it right 100 percent. you you're going in there um usually there's kind of a pre-defined time and then kind of extensions come along and things like that but ultimately like you said it could be six months right it could be three months um, yeah. you're going in somewhere you're doing a specific project but there's kind of an end in sight so it's not like i've just Start my life away or certainly for the next year or two i'm going to be at this company and then that there's not that worry of like is it going to reflect badly on my my kind of cv or my linkedin or whatever if i've if i've just kind of jumped i might do i look like a job hopper you know and i think that paranoia around there you're, you're kind of freed from that so maybe that's you know one of the advantages i didn't touch on earlier is that you do have that opportunity to just say hey this is not for me i'm going to do my three months or six months see you later i'm, I'm going on to the next thing yeah it's that freedom Fully understand. Now, what's what's the best way to reach you, Kim? Uh, probably via LinkedIn. I'm pretty responsive on there. Um, so it's just my first name, Kim, last name, Goddard. Um, obviously, currently work at New Bank if you're looking to search via company or in terms of URL, I think it's Goddard Kim. 100%. And uh, for the listeners, uh, uh, the you can find the LinkedIn of Kim in the episode description. So any comments, any questions, any remarks around contracting, around the work that Kim's done in the tech space, product space, contracting, anything at all, that's where you can go. Kim, it's been amazing. I actually learned quite a bit and um, and uh, I'm going to be asking you for a few mm-hmm. links to tools and a few articles that you mentioned afterwards because that's some some technical stuff and i'll definitely be wondering about you know that that contracting piece seems very interesting so so yeah just wanted to thank you again for taking the time wicked no worries thanks for having me on jose i really appreciate it excellent take care then talk soon bye thanks bye it was great speaking with kim about his experience as a contractor for any questions or comments about his work feel free to connect with him on his linkedin page You can find his LinkedIn in the episode description. Hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to hit like, subscribe or follow on Spotify, Apple or your platform of choice to stay up to date with episode releases. Thanks again and stay safe.